Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy. And today on our show, we've got another amazing guest. She is a renowned expert on women's leadership, has been a best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach for over 35 years. Her work includes books like Rising Together, How Women Rise, The Female Vision, and The Female Advantage. Her work focuses on helping women recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths. Welcome to the show, Sally Helgeson. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Dave. It's great to be with you. Oh, great. I'm excited about this interview. This is such a great and amazing topic. And uh, now you've been cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. Uh, how, how did you get this level of status in this arena? Two things. I think the first was that I was the first sort of out of the gate who was focusing on women's strengths and what women have to contribute as leaders rather than how women need to change and adapt. So that book, The Female Advantage, was the first book to put that viewpoint out there into the world uh, in 1990. And there was nothing else that took that point of view. So companies started calling me and asking me to come in and talk to their women. And it was pretty organic, but it's it's the consequence of being first. And the other thing is just sticking with it <laughs> for a very long time. And there were some pretty lean years. And I had a lot of people say, you know, why are you focusing on women's leadership and inclusive leadership? You need to, you know, just focus on leadership in general. In other words, put myself into a competitive pool where I would just, you know, of a generic topic. And I didn't do it. And it was, you know, some years were very lean, but I felt that that I had a contribution to make in this field uh, of women's leadership and inclusive leadership, which is, you know, including, you know, broadening the pie. And um, in the last uh, 10 years, it's become very much a thing. And I got there first and stuck with it. So, um, so that's, uh, that's how I, what I attribute that to. Now, now you mentioned, yeah, you got there first, uh, you, you stuck with it, which is amazing because, uh, there's gotta be all sorts of huge hurdles in the leadership world. And especially coming out with, uh, things that are probably at that time period, um, less heard of and, we, we know the world wasn't as politically correct back in the 90s as it is now. Um, but what I'm really intrigued about was what was the fresh out of the gates, new to the world, Sally Helgeson like to take this on? <laughs> well, I think I was someone who had had a certain amount of confidence and experience. Number one, my dad was a, a debate coach and a professor of what used to be called speech, later called communication, at our local university in western Michigan. And he used to take, uh, we had a big family, so sometimes to get the older kids out of my mother's hair, he'd take us over 
to the auditorium and we'd and tell us to stand up and give speeches and he would and he would uh, correct them. So I had that sort of background from that, which is it. I, I never really even thought of it until I started, you know, becoming a public speaker, which was basically in the in the 1990s after uh, the Female Advantage came out. Secondly, I'd been a speechwriter. I'd been in corporate communications as well as journalism in the earlier, you know, sort of 20 years of my career. So I had a lot of confidence in my ability to to frame things and bring bring language to ideas that had not necessarily been conceived of in a clear and succinct way. So I think I brought that to the table. I'd also had a good lesson early in my career, if I could share this with you. When I was in uh, corporate communications, uh, I remember going to a meeting. I was the only woman and I was the most junior person there. And uh, as they were talking about something, I had what I thought was a really good idea. And I brought it up. You know, I I thought about it on a spur, so I didn't ask my boss ahead of time or something. I brought it up. And afterwards, as we were walking out, my boss's boss came up behind me and he said, well, you certainly don't have any problem talking about your own opinions in the most scathing way. And I thought, okay, I'm cooked here. (laughs) Obviously, my boss's boss thinks I'm a total jerk. Nothing happened. And then about... um, about a month later, I overheard him in an office talking about, well, uh, one thing I like about Sally is she's not afraid to share her opinions. And I realized, you know, that if you just kind of stick with something, I, partly I didn't respond to him. I didn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. But I didn't also get defensive. I didn't say, I have a perfect right to share my opinion or thought. I just said, no, I'm not. And, and that gave him a chance to get used to it. So I realized that when you have something new and you're putting something new out there, you're not going to get necessarily a positive response at first. But if you stick with it, people will become accustomed to it. Uh, and then and then things will get easier. And that, in fact, has been the case in in the career I've had in this women's leadership, inclusive leadership space. That is amazing. And now, this is you standing up to the boss or holding your own ground. Um, and it seemed to be a situation where, um, yeah, it was just an opinion. Um, but, yeah, what, once again, what were some of the earlier on struggles and maybe some of the situations that you or other women have had to dealt with um, in the less political, uh, correct side of things? Well, I think, you know, for me and for a lot of women, there were two, a couple things. There right. was the challenge of being visible. You know, uh, when you would speak up in a meeting, and I had this earlier and I had this later when I would be invited as sort of the token woman in a forum of people who were leadership experts. You'd say something and no one would respond. And then a guy would say the same thing and everybody go, oh, wow, what a great idea. I never thought of that. So it, it's hard to establish visibility. Um, and it's not, you know, it, it's not deliberate. It's just that they're actually not hearing you. 
So that's been a challenge. It was a challenge for a lot of women. It continues to be. It certainly was a big challenge then. And it was a challenge I had to face. Certainly the issue of pay was another one. It was kind of hard to keep motivated because I have a lot of wonderful colleagues who have been close to me over the years, like Marshall Goldsmith or Tom Peters or Jim Kuzis, you know, guys who've been very helpful. But, you know, they were making about 10 times what I was making to give a talk at this, for the same client. And that's because they were seen as leadership experts and I was seen as a women's leadership expert. And the differences were tremendous um, back in the day. And they it only really began to change, I would say, about 12, 15, possibly 15 years ago, but really changed in the last 10. And and that always made me feel kind of less than or like a little bit like a poor cousin. And it's equivalent to what a lot of women will go through in terms of, of just the, the pay issue and what that makes you feel about yourself. It's hard. It's very hard not to internalize a feeling of being disrespected and being undervalued. And, you know, there's a lot of what, what's interesting now is there's so much stuff about engagement and employee engagement. And this has become a big concern, especially since the pandemic. But it's hard to it's hard to be engaged, even in a job that's just right for you, if you feel undervalued. And absolutely, you know, we count value. One of the ways we count value is in terms of compensation. So that's been a struggle. It's been a struggle for women. Can I say one more thing? Absolutely. <laughs> You know, it is really interesting to me, too, though, that over the 35 years I've been out there working in this field, how we define excellence in leadership has really changed. Uh, An example, when I wrote The Female Advantage, one of the things I talked about was women's relationship building skills. And when I would talk about it publicly, I'd always... Every single time I would get this this observation. Building relationships is a soft skill. It is not a leadership skill. So this was the mindset back in the 90s uh, and beyond that. And, um, you know, I would submit it still exists. We've got some we've got some lionized leaders with some pretty poor relationship skills. Um, male and, you know, certainly some female, but that idea, we have changed. Companies do not take that point of view. Companies recognize organizations of every kind, firms, associations, but corporate, they recognize that relationship building skill is indeed a leadership skill. So I, one of the things that I do strongly believe is that women have had an impact upon how how excellence in leadership is defined. It's a very strong impact. I've tested this out with Tom Peters. You know, he's written like for 40 years, been writing about excellence. He said, absolutely, absolutely. It's completely redefined the game. And I think that you know, there are a lot of factors that influence that. Certainly, you know, people feeling more 
you know, empowered because of the technology that they use and have at their disposal and the ability to be able to start something on your own if your job doesn't work out often, not always. But, um, you know, there are lots of reasons for it that have to do with technology and economics. But I think the another reason that excellence in leadership is redefined, has been redefined since certainly the the time when Jack Welch was on Fortune magazine every other week and seeing yeah. the coming of God. Um, the, the, I think women have played a strong role in that, and that's made it easier um, to surmount some of these challenges that, that do still remain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more with that. And you mentioned the relational skills being high in women and now being accepted into corporate worlds and into the business world and even down to small mom and pa shops. And uh, that kind of tells us one way that the whole ecosystem has changed on us because of this work. Um, what would be a couple other key areas that women have made a change and also how have women adapted and changed within their, themselves in kind of these leadership aspects then? Well, those are two good questions. Let me take the first one. I, I think one that, that sort of jumps, or two of them jump out at me in terms of, of the shift in how we perceive excellence in leadership. One is direct communication. When I was researching highly effective women leaders who also saw themselves as having advantages because they were women, one of the things I saw is that they were very comfortable with direct communication as opposed to communication up and down a chain of command so that they did not insulate themselves. And that has become you know, much more valued as a leadership skill. Again, the technology is a big part of it. You know, people are, are more accessible, so they need to behave in ways that are more accessible. So I think that's one. But another one, certainly, is just the, the appreciation for the perspective that historic outsiders bring to leadership. And we see that, you know, all over. I mean, um, what's it? Mozilla? Fox, a major technology company that I was reading about has, oh, it's SAP, has this major initiative of being able to um, engage, hire, engage, develop, cultivate, you know, people who are on the spectrum of Asperger's and how are they going to do that and how can they engage them and include them and uh, and they have had tremendous, some tremendous success with innovative products and services that have come from that population, which they have really, really worked to engage. So this is a, a just a sort of a, almost a presumption that people who come from outside the leadership mainstream have something to contribute, uh, that they see things with fresh eyes. And that's one of the things that I that I saw with women, not to mention, of course, this ability to toggle back and forth between work and home, which has become, you know, more and more important. Uh, Henry Mintzberg had the the um, the uh, the idea that a lot of the male executives he studied sort of saw their home as a branch office, <laughs> and they weren't really <laughs> present when they were there, and uh, and that 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 era is to some extent over. So people are more comfortable with bringing their domestic lives and the skills they learn 
um, as uh, as a parent, for example, into the workplace and vice versa. So in all those ways, that's been um, that's been a, a big, big change. You had a second question there, but I, and I'm not remembering it. Um, no, I think you you hit on it as well as how women have adapted and changed in this oh, yeah. ecosystem as well. And uh, you, you mentioned a couple really amazing things that that's that struck me there, and uh, that was how far we can now take this into other populations that need to be integrated. And you mentioned that with SAP and what they're doing with uh, autism spectrum. And uh, you've said it too, that uh, DEI um, isn't going away. And that phrase or word, depending on each person's experience, can be like a negative connotation that hits them in the face. And uh, they'll go back to your comment of being the token woman in the room. Um, Or it can be this enlightened yeah, companies are starting to integrate and make people feel welcome and even bring in their home life into the, the business situation. Um, what does this kind of mean to you? And uh, what avenues do your mind, does your mind kind of shoot to kind of in future perspectives with this then? Well, I do think, you know, there, there are two things with DEI. Number one, it's been... Um, it's often been done with an emphasis upon identity, uh, you know, what someone is, feels that they're not getting, uh, ways in which they feel things have been unfair. So I think in, in certain cases, there's been a kind of a negative um, strain within how some of this has been delivered probably amplified by the focus on unconscious bias, because guess what? You know, we all have thoughts running through our head. That's not the point. The point is how we behave, how we, you know, our speech and our actions are the point, not what's going through people's minds. So I don't think this has been a particularly helpful aspect of how DEI has often been delivered. It's beginning to shift now. Uh, And some of the language has not been useful, but, you know, this emphasis on finding, you know, diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity and inclusion, however, it's going to be an alphabet soup. But uh, this emphasis is there for a reason in in organizations. And the reason is the, the highly diverse nature of the global talent pool. And every organization, as you say, whether it's mom and pop, store in the corner or whether it's a you know a global organization of 80,000 people uh, they need to hire from the talent pool that is and it is very very diverse and if they are going to restrict themselves to one segment whether that's men or you know in western countries you know white people in Japan Japanese only you know, whatever that is, they are going to limit their ability to engage talent. And I think this is a, a point that is broadly recognized and that this is why DEI efforts, you know, came into being because uh, organizations have this issue. Uh, so two things. Number one, it hasn't always been done that well. In my book, Rising Together, which came out last year, I'll hold it up here to do my publisher favor. Um, Rising Together, I try to look at 
the behaviors that uh, and how we build behaviors that create inclusive cultures, because I think there's been a lot of emphasis on the why. And that's not necessarily what people are looking for. They want something more tactical, in addition to which, of course, we've also seen, you know, some political pushback to the whole DEI and uh, the idea that this is nothing about nothing but privileging people who who don't have the the capacity to do certain jobs, and that's fine if somebody wants to have that point of view. Okay, you're entitled to your opinion, but it's not particularly helpful to organizations <laughs> at this point who have this concern with a with a uh, the hiring pool. So I always say, you know, diversity is the it's not a goal. It's not an aspiration. It is the nature of the global talent pool. And inclusion is the set of behaviors uh, that are most effective at leading and managing uh, talent that is highly diverse. So it's something that reflects reality. It's not, it's not a politically correct ideology at work. And this is getting misrepresented and I think misunderstood, but it, it essentially doesn't matter that much. I don't think companies will change their language that they use. And right, exactly. Yeah. Now, with this, and um, once again, gem after gem, and my mind automatically went to how these are talent pools and how companies, organizations want to keep that and nurture it. And uh, let's just bring the DEI back to male, female, just so it's a little easier on the next kind of theme here. And that is on stress and burnout. And kind of your experience with leadership in the women's realm, um, there's different mechanisms biologically with drive and with stress hormones and with these high stake pressure situations that occur. Um, what have you kind of noticed then um, over your years of experience with especially kind of in the female realm when it comes to taking on too much or feeling that guilt, burden, responsibility, and stress that, that comes with managing and leading people? Um, what have been your observations and what sort of changes do you think uh, could be integrated so that companies are able to hold on to their talent pool without wearing people out? Well, I think that some of what you're referring to is one of the reasons that women tend to move into leadership positions at a period that's later in their career than men do. And whether that just has to do with the practicalities of managing a family and uh, and managing work. Uh, if you don't have a husband who's, who stays at home, which more and more people do, or a, or you don't have a, a really good split between who's doing what, that makes makes sense. Um, that that it's it's harder for women. So you tend to see that you tend to see women um, coming into into leadership roles later in their careers, which to me is not that big a problem because guess what? We all have much longer careers now than we used to in the past. You know, yes. um, people had retired 10 or 15 years ago when they're my age and 
things are, you know, (laughs) kind of taking off for me. One thing that was helpful for me was adapting um, in my early 60s, the the motto mid-career at 65. I found that very helpful in thinking about how I how I handled opportunities and how I saw things. So given the length of a career uh, span that's now in operation and the fact that more and more companies have dropped the you know mandatory retirement uh, business, I don't see it as that much of an, a, of an issue. However, one of the things we saw certainly in the pandemic was that it that the work from home thing has often, not again, not always, um, but been particularly challenging for women. Number one, there were huge advantages for it. For example, I moved, I I worked for a consortium of insurance companies in New England, and um, they had trouble attracting women because of their rigorous be in the office uh, policies. Also, an energy company I worked with in the South that had the same thing. The executives really felt like if you're working from home, you're not working. And so in the with New England, the big issue they had was snow days. And they had women who were quitting because when they would have a snow day and the kids would be suddenly home from school, they were expected to show up. So a lot of those pro- uh, problems got addressed in the pandemic. And I remember talking to people at that energy company in the South, and they said, this is the first time our executives have actually realized that people can not only be productive if they don't come into the office every day, they can in many cases be more productive. So they saw that. And that was, that I think has played tremendously to the advantage of women in even when companies, when people go back to work, just having executives who've seen that and seen that insight that, you know, you're not slacking off if you're working from home necessarily. That's been a big plus for women. On the other hand, certainly, you know, trying to, trying to, and I guess I know I've been on the receiving end of, you know, someone doing a Zoom with a three-year-old running around is not an effective uh, way of showing up and being able to participate um, with full attention. So that has been, you know, that's created some stress points. I do think that the emphasis that it has created on things like mental health and wellness in many organizations uh, is a very, very positive thing. On the other hand, it's not going to be positive unless it translates into policies that adapt to people where they are, you know, unless they give people to some extent the capacity to be their own HR departments and decide you know, how they can most effectively use their time, their technology, and their attention. When there's not that capability, you know, offering massages in a cubicle down the hall is not going to necessarily be that successful. So so I think that I, I see the signs as being, you know, fairly positive right now. Counter Counterbalancing that is, you know, just the the fact that organizations are working ever more leanly and that creates, you know, stress on employees in general. Right. And yeah, I see this as a huge opportunity um, uh, because there is obviously a lot going on with mental health and the way different groups and 
uh, different biologies are going to deal with it is going to be different. And uh, there needs to be that that incorporation with it as well. And uh, I, I think it's it's brilliant how you're able to to mesh that into with the actual root causes and stressors of some of this. And, uh, and I, I think that's, that's one of the gems that, that is unfolded today. And I love it. Um, you're known for just giving people lots of amazing things to, to integrate and to incorporate with leadership so that they can help a lot more people. Um, you've got, at least eight books out there. Um, how, how do people kind of mesh up what they should read next or first with the material you have? Well, I would say that it, not just for women, but for a lot of men, How Women Rise yes. is really, really helpful. You know, I did it. I had the uh, my colleague and friend Marshall Goldsmith had written What Got You Here Won't Get You There, huge international bestseller. I thought his insight was brilliant that the same habits and behaviors that serve you well early in your career can be the very ones that get in your way as you uh, move higher. And I knew that that applied to women, but the behaviors that he was focusing on, you know, learn to apologize or don't always talk about how great you are. You know, I felt they came from his, you know, hotshot male executive base and I hadn't seen them much for women. So I suggested to him that we collaborate on a book, which is How Women Rise, that looked at the internal barriers or habits and behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women as they move higher. This book has been so successful and so resonant in such a variety of cultures. I've done programs in person in Japan, in Turkey, in Brazil, you know, in Finland, in in the, in the Middle East, in the most different possible kinds of cultures, India, certainly Korea, and uh, found that that the the commonalities are incredible. I've got <laughs> the Mongolian version on my desk behind me because I never thought I'd have a book translated into uh, Mongolian. So so we collaborated on that, and I think that's a great book. Um, you know, for women to start with, but also what amazed me almost from the day that book was published, I was doing a drive time radio uh, segment with a guy and he said, I read your book and I want to talk about the four habits I most identify with. And I thought, wow, that's surprising. And guess what? I now have come to, and I told Marshall this and he agreed, I've come to think of it as the behaviors that got left out of what got you here. It's very resonant for women. But for almost anybody who has felt outside the leadership mainstream for one reason or another, I know you work a lot with, you know, athletes who are introverted. So a lot of people who are introverted, you know, a lot of the stuff on positioning yourself to be visible makes people very uncomfortable. There's a lot in there. So I would recommend that. Um, the most recent book I have out, Rising Together, uh, which is about how to build more inclusive cultures with the emphasis on how, not on why. You know, we know this. We've been hearing this for, for 15 years. But how? How do people do it as individuals? How do leaders do it in terms of their own leadership style? Especially, how do we create more inclusive teams? The how, the behaviors. And I think, you know, as I made clear earlier, I think behaviors have been under 
recognized as a source of building inclusive cultures and things like unconscious bias has been, you know, we've focused too much on that. So uh, a lot in there about how to do that. And I've given some workshops around the world on this, which have really been, you know, very, very gratifying because what I seek to do in my, I have two goals in my writing. It's always to be absolutely clear, not to be original, not to be hilarious, not to be whatever, although, you know, sometimes it's funny, but to be as clear as humanly possible so that people can really get what I'm talking about. And that takes a lot of work. But in the, in the, uh, the programs I do um, that are based on that, my goal is to be as tactical as I can and give people really simple, basic takeaways. You know, I'm not going to stand up there and say, let me share my leadership model with you. You know, no. I, I mean, I think I did that early in my career. I'm embarrassed to say, but it's not effective. It's not, you know, people are busy. They want small things that they think they can do on Monday morning that can make a difference in their career, in their leadership style, to their team, in their lives. And so that's what I try to try to focus on. And because I've had so much exposure and for so, so long, um, that's where I think that I've really been able to make my my biggest contribution. And it it is amazing contributions. Um now, if I'm not a reader, you've mentioned the workshops, um, masterminds. Uh, where do they find out um, how to take these or how to uh, get in on your next next workshop or public speaking event? Uh, where do they find you? Sure. Uh, my website, Sally, uh, sallyhelgeson.com. Uh, I've got a list of the programs I do. Most of them are privates. Uh, most of them are internal programs. Uh, so it's not a big list of public stuff there, but uh, there are so many videos and, you know, I hear that all the time. Oh, I saw the video on this. I saw, I don't know where the heck they are, but they're out there in the world, you know, Google Sally Helgeson on YouTube. And, um, but the, the, the website is really a good resource. I have lots of writing there, lots of short articles that my newsletter that I do on Substack, um, which people can subscribe to and which I've been having a really a lot of fun with lately. Uh, so lots of resources out there. And then obviously, of course, um, the books I have, which are um, almost all of them are still in print. Right. Uh, once again, thank you so much. And for people tuning in, definitely check out Sally Helgeson's. Uh, any events, video, book. It is well worth it. And definitely stay tuned to the next episode of The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. Take care.